Hope that you do have your Bible with you this morning. I want to invite you to, to find again Romans chapter 8. We're going to be digging in there together in just a few moments. But before we do that, I just wanted to take a moment. And if you were here in the free service time, you saw the, uh, the video that just uh, reminded us of some of the events uh, that uh, this day marks the anniversary of 15 years ago, the uh, 9-11 attacks and some of those vivid images that are still very real in many of our minds of, of airplanes flying into buildings and uh, all of the aftermath uh, of that. And just it seems appropriate uh, for uh, the people of God who are gathering in places of worship, uh, certainly all across this nation and even across the world uh, today, just to, to pause and, and to uh, reflect and to remember. And so I, I'd like to just invite you to do that with me today. And uh, we'll just begin, and I'll just ask you just to, to be still for a moment of just silent reflection and prayer, and then I'll give voice uh, to a prayer for us together. So let's, let's bow our heads together as we pause to remember. Father, as we do pause on this morning to remember and to reflect on the events of 15 years ago, Father, we are, uh, we are humbled. And, uh, Lord, there's just a whole mixture of thoughts and emotions that run through our hearts and heads as we, as we do pause and remember as some of those images are rebroadcast on uh, TV and computer screens. Father, just, uh, we're just so grateful that you have so watched over us and you have blessed us in so many ways over these past 15 years, certainly more than we deserve, and we do thank you and praise you for that, for even the protection you've given us as a nation, as a people, uh, protection that we just very often take for granted, quite honestly, and we just thank you for it today. Lord, we just can't help but on a day like this just uh, to remember families that have been affected by that and Families that even though buildings have been uh, rebuilt, Father, that in many ways uh, families are still rebuilding their lives and uh, that uh, their life was never the same after that day. Uh, lives of people who went to work and never got to come home, of first responders who rushed in and gave their lives uh, seeking to save the lives of others. And uh, Father, we just, uh, we, we just lift those families to you today. Father, we think about uh, our men and women who serve in the military, and Lord, over this past 15 years, lives that have been lost, and uh, Father, we, we pray for those families. We thank you for the service of our men and women. Father, we, we just lift them and their families to you today, that you would just watch over them with a hand of protection, that you would give wisdom to those who make decisions about uh, what to do or what not to do, how best to confront terror and evil. Uh, Father, we pray for those who make hard decisions about putting lives in harm's way. We pray that you would minister to those who are grieving their, their loss. Father, we thank you for the first responders, police, uh, fire, medical personnel, on and on that list goes, Father. How grateful we are for their service in all of our communities. And we just pray, Father, that your hand would be upon them. And Lord, let us just continue to express an appreciation to them. 
Father, even as we have much to be thankful for on this day, Lord, there's, there's a part of me that, that longs for more. Lord, I remember just days after the 9-11 attacks, uh, hundreds, perhaps thousands of people gathered in a much smaller parking lot that was then across the street and cried out to you in prayer with candlelights. And Father, just uh, a powerful moment for sure. But Lord, in many ways, these past 15 years, we haven't kept our heart turned towards you. And Lord, we have actually turned from you in, in many ways over these past 15 years. And Father, I just pray for your grace and for your mercy. Father, would you grant to us a spirit of repentance? Would you call us to a brokenness as a a nation over our sin and rebellion of, of ignoring you? Would you turn our hearts fully and completely to you? Father, just thank you for the winds of revival, those sparks that you have have allowed us to to see and experience just glimpses of, and we just pray even in this fellowship of believers, Father, that you would fan into flame those sparks of revival, Lord, that it might be something that could ripple forth from this place throughout our community, our nation, and our world. Father, we just ask, Lord, that you would just grant us a, a visitation of your manifest presence, that you'd bring us to a fresh realization of our dependence upon you, that we would turn from lesser things individually, as families, as churches, as a nation, and we would turn fully and completely to you. Father, thank you for your provision. Thank you for this land that we get to live in. Father, would you help us to to utilize all the opportunities in it for you and for your kingdom. We pray this together now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining in that. I do want to just uh, shift gears uh, here if we can, and we do want to jump back into this study of uh, Romans 8, this this uh, powerful and yet uh, pivotal chapter in, in God's Word, and there's been so much ri- richness there. And Maybe to jump into the topic of today, I'll take you back uh, even further than 15 years. The year was 1979. A man by the name of Norman Cousins was the editor-in-chief of the Saturday Review for more than three decades at that point. Norman was given a diagnosis by the medical team that said he probably had maximum of six months to live. In fact, his chances of living beyond that were about one in 500. But Norman decided to attack it a little differently. And he wrote about his experience in a best-selling book, The Anatomy of an Illness. And instead of living six months, he actually uh, continued to live for uh, another two decades uh, beyond that diagnosis. And he attacked that with uh, the best medical care that he could get. But as the doctors administered medicine, he decided to bring a perspective. He knew the importance of attitude and perspective. And particularly, he wanted to combat his uh, illness with laughter. And so Norman Cousins told his friends to call him every time they heard something or did something uh, that was funny. He watched comedies, he listened to stand-up comedians, and he began to just pull pranks on some of the hospital staff. And he was just so enjoying this that there was one nurse, though, there was one nurse in particular that, that she would never 
even crack a smile. I mean, he couldn't get her to crack a smile. And so this kind of became his mission. I am going to make this nurse laugh. I mean, she was so kind of difficult to work with that every time he pushed the call button, I mean, he, he felt like, you know, she was just like mad at him for pushing the call button and stuff. And so this kind of became his mission. I got to get her to laugh or at least smile. And so one day, this uh, rather uh, grumpy nurse came and she brought a little specimen cup and said, you know, you need to, you need to fill this up uh, with, uh, you know, fill us up with urine. And he had an idea. And so he got some apple juice and he poured it into the cup, right? And so he had it sitting there and uh, she comes in and she looks at the, the cup there and she says, a little cloudy today, aren't we? He picks it up and says, you're right. Let's run her through again. And he drinks it real quick. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> well, of course, she just gets this horrified look on her face like, I can't believe he just did that, right? And then he turns around and explains to her what he did. And finally, finally, he got her to laugh, right? The laughter looked good on her. It looks good on you. And what Cousins went on to teach many people through his writings and actually through some teaching uh, opportunities that he had uh, was the power of our perspective. The power of our perspective, it affects us uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It affects all the areas of our life. And the Apostle Paul would agree with that. The Apostle Paul knew that our perspective really, really, really does matter, that it matters how we live our life. And that's why in these verses we're going to look at from Romans 8, he, he was helping these, these, the recipients of the letter and you and I to, to really think about what it is that was ahead of us, to gain a little perspective on what our future was going to be because we were in Jesus Christ. Because what Paul knew is something that you and I need to know, and that is that understanding my future radically, radically, radically changes the way I view and live my life today. That it's not just about out there in the sweet by and by, but when I really come to understand the future that God has prepared for me in Christ Jesus, it begins to radically change how I understand and interpret and view my life today and how I live my life every single day. And so what I want to do this morning is just allow Paul to kind of guide us, to guide us into a renewed understanding of the provisions of God, these wonderful promised provisions of God. This is our future if we are in Jesus Christ. And if we will really understand this future, not just kind of on a passing intellectual level, but in kind of at the gut level and the core of our being, it will radically change our perspective on our life and how we live our lives every single day. I want you to see some of the provisions of God that Paul was celebrating. The first is the promise of future glory. The promise of future glory. Let's pick it up in verse 18 there of Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
He uses some, some very specific words there. The word consider, or some of your translations will say reckon. It's used actually 15 times just in this letter to the Romans alone. It's a letter about calculation. It's a letter about thinking it through, gathering the data, comparing the facts, and, and making a sound judgment. And he said, I, I want you to understand. I want you to consider. I want you to reckon. I want you to do the accounting here and understand that whatever the reality of your present sufferings are and Paul knew suffering he said it it, it it is it is nothing compared it is nothing compared to the future glory that is to be revealed to us that which we will experience in fact is when he uses the term not worth comparing it's really a terminology from kind of the old-timey scales you know we have all electronic scales and stuff now right but do you remember the old-timey scales where kind of had like two platters or baskets and they kind of like were maybe had a chain they were held on and a little bar across the top and and you'd put like you know a pound weight here and then you'd fill it up and when it was even you knew you 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 had it well he kind of uses that picture here of not worth comparing it's the picture of tipping the scales And, and it's not to deny the reality of suffering I mean you put that on one side of the scale and if that's all there is the scale's like this right he said when you add when you put into the perspective What is awaiting us? It tips the scale. It radically shifts the scale so that it is not worth comparing. It blows whatever it is that suffering is out of the water. And again, Paul is not some armchair philosopher. He's not writing from some ivory tower. He knew suffering. He knew shipwreck. He knew imprisonment. He knew beatings. He knew lashes opening up his back. He knew having stones thrown at you and being left for dead. He knew betrayal by people that he thought he could count on. He knew all of those things. And yet when he talked about his own experience in Corinthians, he did not focus just on the suffering. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Just a few verses later in that same chapter. So we do not lose heart. What a perspective. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this, notice these phrases, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal he said listen the current suffering it's real it's real But it differs. It differs from the future glory that is to come. It differs, first of all, in its intensity. It's an intensity. Did you notice the words of contrast? Light, momentary affliction. Now, we all understand when you're in the middle of it, it seems neither light nor momentary, right? But he said, when you compare that against the backdrop of eternity, when you compare that against what is to come, it seems to be light and momentary as opposed to the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But not only does it differ in its intensity, but it differs in its duration. 
It's duration. It's transient. You say, well, it doesn't feel transient. This has been going on for weeks or months or years. But even if, even if whatever you're walking through is, is into the years, when you put that against eternity, it is transient. It is temporary. It is momentary along the way. Perhaps that's why Paul sought to remind the Philippians. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think this is it, if you think this life is all there is, if you think your citizenship is about right here, right now, and that's the main thing, and that's the most important thing, you will lose perspective. You will lose the the, the capacity to live life full out. But when you understand, when you understand that our citizenship is in heaven, that I am just passing through this world, that I am just going to be here for a short time compared to the backdrop of eternity, then you begin to understand where your allegiance lies, where your hope lies, where your power lies. It all comes from not what is seen, but what is unseen. We reflect on the promise of future glory, and it, it gives us perspective. It gives us the capacity to live life differently. But he goes on building his case. Don't just think about the promise of future glory, but think about the promise of a renewed creation. Think about the promise of what God intends to do in a brand new creation. Let's pick up in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, we'll pick that up in just a moment. But let's focus on three truths about the cosmos. And I use that term intentionally because when we're talking about creation here, sometimes we just think about planet Earth, if you will. But actually, the creation is the entire cosmos, the entire universe. And there are some things that the Bible tells us we can know about this creation. The first thing is that this world, and include the universe, this world was intentionally created by God. There was an intentionality to it. So the Bible opens with the words, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That it's not an accident that that God intentionally, with purpose, created the cosmos. And as he surveyed his creation, he pronounced that it was good, that it was a a good creation. It was fulfilling all of his purposes. We know that this world was intentionally created by God. But the second truth is not as pleasant. We know that this world is not now what it was created to be. It is not now, 
exactly what it was created to be. You continue to follow Genesis, and what you find is the introduction of sin, the introduction of rebellion. And in the rebellion of Adam, there was not just an effect on you and I as human beings, there was an effect on the entire universe. Notice what Genesis 3 says. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. There is a direct link between mankind and the rest of creation. Man, this pinnacle of God's creation, the one who is entrusted with the oversight and the stewardship of all of God's creation. When there was our rebellion, when there was our sin, it not only affected every other human being, but it affected the entire universe. Now, I don't know about you, but as I think about that, I'm really blown away. Uh, because uh, I've had some opportunity, and I know some of you have had some much more, even more opportunity to see various parts of this country and various parts of the world. And I got to tell you, there's some awesome things to see out there, aren't there? I mean, my goodness. Whether you're a mountain person or an ocean person, whether you like the, the, the water or the snow, the, the waterfalls and scenery, incredible variety of plant and animal life uh, I mean, just i mean wow i mean sometimes you just step out into god's creation I, it just blows me away i think wow could it really get any better than this and then i remember what the bible says and it's like wow this is how great it looks scarred by sin what did it look like when it was original design I mean, how awesome was this universe before the introduction of sin? As great and wonderful as it is, as awesome as this creation is, as, as marvelous as it is to be able to stand out somewhere in the dark and, and look and see the moon and the stars and just kind of wonder about the vastness of this universe, what was it like before it was cursed? by sin we know that this world is not now exactly what it was but we also know a future is coming and we know that the world will one day be renewed and that's what he was reminding them of here in romans that while it was subjected to futility because of what we had done it is in bondage to corruption it's going to obtain freedom it's going to be set free at some point there is going to be this this renewal of creation and you find that throughout scripture you find that throughout the new testament let's go to the last book of the bible book of revelation then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Just a couple of verses later, no longer will there be anything accursed. Notice, the, notice what's happened. Genesis 3, accursing. You get to Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be anything accursed because God has intervened. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him 
Peter looked forward to that day. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All of this is part of that renewed, that brand new creation, that transformation of the cosmos that is in our future as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then Paul in Romans draws on the imagery of childbirth here. And, And listen, ladies, let's just, okay, let me just go ahead, all right? I know as a guy, I got no right to talk here, all right? I, I understand it. I get it. Don't write me a note. I understand, okay? Okay? I was in the room when both of our kids were born. I was in the room when a grandson was born, but I still don't get it. I understand that, okay? Paul didn't really get it, but he wrote it, okay? But let's talk about it because he wrote it, okay? Knowing that I don't really get it, But Paul uses that imagery to describe the creation. And and he talked about the the groaning. He talked about uh, that the whole uh, creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. What it reminds us is, is that that groaning, that pain, that accursedness of creation, it is first of all not endless. It is not endless. Now, I get it. I understand. When you're in the middle of it, it seems endless, okay? I mean, like, this is is this ever going to end, you know? But the word is it's not endless. It is not endless. The state of creation and, and sometimes the decay and the disarray and the destruction, it is not always going to be that way. It is not endless. And because it is not endless, it is not hopeless, in the pains of childbirth, there is, there is real pain and the severity of that pain, but there is hope on the other end because on the other side of that pain is new life. On the other side of that pain is something wonderful, something brand new, something indescribable. And that's the imagery he's trying to draw on. The, the, the pain and the accursedness, the groaning that creation is experiencing right now is not endless. It's not going to go on forever. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And because of that, it's not hopeless. And I know, you know, when the floodwaters rise, when the lava flows, when earthquakes shatter, you think, wow. But you realize it's not endless and it's not hopeless because God is going to renew this creation, this cosmos one day. And as a part of that, the, the third truth I want you to kind of see this part of our, our future is that, that, that we have uh, this, this capacity uh, to, to be a part of that. Before I turn to that, J.B. Phillips, I love the way he, he talked about creation in his translation of 819. The whole creation is on tiptoe on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. Isn't that a great picture? It's almost like all of creation is like a little kid on tiptoes trying to look over and see, right? Oh, when is it going to be fulfilled? When when are all the the children of God going to be gathered so that this creation can be renewed? It's standing on tiptoes with anticipation of what is to come. And this new cosmos is going to be inhabited by the children of God who have resurrected bodies. There's the promise of a resurrected 
body. Let me just back up and go ahead and read verse 23. And not only the creation, it's not just creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul is just reminding them, remember, remember. He's talked about you were sealed, you were indwelt, you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's presence is just a foretaste of what is to come. It is a down payment of what is to come. That that, that this Spirit who has taken up residence in you is one day going to be a part of renewing and resurrecting that body. But you may, as you, I read those verses, you may say, wait a minute, I'm a little confused because didn't we just talk a couple weeks ago about the fact that we've received the, the spirit of adoption, that as sons we cry out, Abba, Father? And then here he turns around and, and makes it sound like we're not quite really fully adopted yet. He, he uses uh, that we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons. What in the world is up with that? It's kind of the already and the not yet of our adoption. The already and the not yet. Already we are adopted. Already if we are genuinely in Jesus Christ, if we have responded to his grace by faith, that he has sealed us, he has brought us into his forever family. That cannot change. But there is also a not yet aspect of it. We are not yet fully redeemed. We are not yet fully experienced in the full adoption in resurrected bodies. So while yes we are adopted we have the privilege to call out Abba Father there is a not yet sense it is not yet completed it is not yet totally fulfilled whenever I think about that I think about an old theologian that I heard about many years ago he was walking down the street and there was somebody out kind of doing some street witnessing some street evangelism and he came up to this theologian he didn't know who he was and he said brother are you saved the theologian paused for a moment he said, yes, partly, and not yet. <laughs> it's not the answer that this guy typically got on the street. And so he went on to explain. He said, yes, by the grace of Jesus Christ, I'm saved. My sins have been forgiven. I'm secure with Christ forever. But partly, because he's still in the process of transforming me. He's still at work in me, making me more and more like him. Theologians call that sanctification. But he said, not yet. I'm not yet fully in his presence. I'm not yet living in a fully resurrected body. Brother, are you saved? If you're in Jesus Christ, there's an already and a not yet. Yes, partly and not yet. That's kind of part of our journey, part of our story in this adoption. But what Paul is pointing us to in a renewed creation, we are going to have resurrected bodies. We are going to experience resurrected bodies fit for this new heaven and this new earth. And again, you find that theme throughout the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. 2 Corinthians, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
If Christ was resurrected, it's that same power. It is that is going to be at work in us to resurrect our bodies, to bring us fully into his presence. To the Philippians, he wrote, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That that, that is part of what we have as our future. That is part of what should inform the way we view our today and view our forever. And it makes all the difference in the world, does it not? I mean, you know, listen, there are days when maybe you get, well, probably nobody in this service, but in some of the other services, people get up and their body makes strange noises, Sometimes it doesn't move so fast. Sometimes there's unexplainable aches and pains. Sometimes it doesn't cooperate. Sometimes my mind writes checks my body can't cash anymore, right? Anybody had that? You know? Or you see a picture of yourself from 15 or 20 years ago. And you look in the mirror and wonder what happened to that dude, right? (laughs) Or you have a friend or a loved one who gets that diagnosis. And you start to witness that one that you love. The disease start to win. And the body deteriorate. And maybe the pain increases and the weight comes off. Or maybe there's swelling or whatever it is. And in those moments, in those moments you say, God, thank you. <laughs> thank you that this is not endless and it is not hopeless. God, thank you that not only is there going to be a redeemed creation, but there's going to be a resurrected body. God, thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And in light of all that is ahead of us, in light of all that is our birthright, our inheritance, if you will, in Jesus Christ, what do we do in the meantime? Well, Paul gives us kind of some expressions here in Romans 8. He says, in the meantime, we groan inwardly. We groan inwardly that there is real suffering. There is real pain. There is a real longing to be where God is preparing us to be. There come those moments when we just say come quickly Lord Jesus there come those moments when we just say God man I'm ready I am ready to go on let's move this thing forward we groan inwardly because the suffering in a sin scarred world is very very real but while we groan inwardly we also wait eagerly and patiently that's kind of an interesting word combination isn't it eagerly and patiently But that's kind of that combination. That's why I go back to that tiptoe expression of creation. There's an eagerness. We long for that more and more and more, God. We we, we, we long for that. But at the same time, God, there's a patience. We know that your timing is best. We know that your ways are best. We know that you are working out and fulfilling your purposes. And so, God, while there are moments and days where I just want it to happen right here, right now, God, I, I wait. I await patiently trusting in your wisdom and your timing and your ways so we wait but in the midst of that we hope 
We hope expectantly. We have a hope that is beyond the suffering of this moment, beyond the the cursedness of this creation, beyond whatever it is that we may be going through. And please understand, when the New Testament uses the word hope, it uses it probably differently than most of us use it in our conversation. A lot of times when we use the word hope in our culture, it's really hope equals wish, right? I hope it doesn't rain this weekend. I hope they asked me to the dance. I, I hope I get into this school. I hope I get this job. I hope I get a raise. I, basically, we're expressing wishes. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't really talk about a wish. Oh, I wish this come true, but I don't have any control over it. No, no, no. Hope is this confident expectation. It is a confident expectation in the promises of God. God has promised this. God has provided this. And I have a confident expectation that it is going to come to pass. And so I I have this confident expectation. I don't see it right yet. Hope, if it seems not hope. But I have this confident expectation in what is yet to come and so even as i groan inwardly i wait eagerly and patiently and i hope expectantly now this is why it's so important not just for there but for here because there's a truth that i know and i hope that you know and that is where there is hope in the future there is power in the present where there is hope in the future, there is power in the present. That, that helps to explain why can folks go through some of the things they go through? How can somebody endure that kind of suffering? How can somebody endure life in a prison camp? How can somebody wade through the unspeakable horrors that some have waded through and, and come out and have strength on the other end? The reason they can do it in large part is because they have hope they have hope in the future and when there's hope in the future there is power in the present the reverse of that is also true you've seen it i've seen it you've heard or read the stories maybe somebody that was even strong in a difficult situation but something happens they lose hope and when they lose hope they lose strength they lose power they lose the capacity to go on. Where there's hope in the future, there's power in the present. And one of the reasons Paul is lifting up this, this perspective, this, this future glory, this redeemed creation, these resurrected bodies is, I want you to have this certain expectation. I want you to live in this hope. And when you have that hope in the future, it will empower and it will transform your present. When there's hope in the future, there's power in the present. But please don't misunderstand what i'm saying when we use words like wait and hope this isn't about being passive if in light of our future we are not called to live a life of passivity but of purpose and power with passion and purity that that's what he calls us to that's why he's putting up this hope the the life that christ calls us to the hope that he calls us to live in is not go sell everything you have go sit on top of a mountain get in kind of a lotus position there and just hum and uh, meditate and say "Mm, come lord jesus come no 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 
engage, engage fully in life because God has a purpose for you right here, right now. He desires that that future hope will fuel you with power and passion, that you will, you will live a life of holiness and purity because you know that it's not just about these few fleeting years, but it is about forever. It is about eternity. And because you have hope in the future, you have a power, you have a purpose purpose. You live with a passion. You bring a purity to your life because of the future that you have. Because the way you see your future dictates how you view your life now and how you live your life today. Let me return you to the words of Paul. We read these earlier, but I want you to hear them again in this context. So we do not lose heart. The suffering is real. The pain is real. The challenges are real. The difficulties are real. But we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, whenever I think about this, I think about a diagram and some questions that have just meant so much to me. And I'm going to try to scoot this out of the way. And I know in doing so, I'm probably putting it in somebody else's way. But let me just stick with it. Some of you have, have heard me do this before. It's just been something that's been so meaningful to me because uh, I'm a simple guy. And sometimes I just need simple stuff to help me remember. But it, 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 it's just, I, I got this years ago from Randy Alcorn of Eternal Perspective Ministries. And it's just been so helpful to me. He talks about the dot and the line, the dot and the line. And, and so if, if you can think about just, I'm going to just draw a dot. I might encourage you to do the same on your paper. And I know that's a big dot, but you, I don't do great artwork, but that's supposed to be a dot, okay? The dot represents our life right here and now. This is life on planet Earth, if you will. It's all the years that you and I get. I don't know if you're going to get 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. Some of you may get more, some less. We don't know. Don't really know how big that dot is, but we know it's a dot. That's my life here and now. And for some people, that's what they think life is. It's a dot. And you just, you know, do the best you can, grab all the gusto you can, whatever. You just do what everybody else does in the dot. But what Paul wants us to understand, what the New Testament teaches, is that our life is not just a dot, but there's also a line. And the line is connected to the dot, grows out of the dot. And if you remember from your days in school, there's an arrow on the end of the line, which signifies that it kind of goes on forever. All right? So you have a dot... And you have a line. The line is my life in eternity. It's my life beyond 60, 70, 80 years. It's my forever life. Now, here's the things that I I, want to make sure that you understand out of this. 
and the connection between the two. What happens in the dot determines everything that happens on the line. What happens in the dot, this is real life. This is not dress rehearsal. This is not practice. This is not scrimmage. This, the clock is really ticking. Everything counts. What happens in the dot determines everything that happens on the line. My belief determines my eternal destination. Here's, here's one of the things I, I'm just trying to remind myself more and more of these days. When, when, I, when, I, when I'm in a restaurant, when I'm in a crowd of people, uh, when, when, when I saw people on the, on the beach the last week, when, when I turn on a ball game and see 80, 90, or Bristol Motor Speedway, almost 160,000 people, and it's a, just to kind of say, Lord, help me to remember, help me to remember, everybody is going to spend forever somewhere. Everybody in this room is going to spend forever somewhere. Everybody at the restaurant you go to, everybody that you go to school with, everybody that you work with, everybody that fills the stands at the ball game, everybody that clogs up the interstate going up and down, everybody is going to spend forever somewhere. And based on our belief in the dot, we'll either spend forever in the presence of God with all these promises that we've just been talking about, or we'll spend forever in a very real place the Bible calls hell. Those are the only two options. We're either in Christ, we'll spend forever with Christ, or he will kind of honor our decision in the dot to not want to have anything to do with him, and he, he will leave us to our choice for all eternity. My belief determines my eternal destination. But here's the other thing Scripture says. My behavior determines my eternal reward. What I do in the dot matters. It matters. Paul said you can build on the foundation of Jesus Christ with stuff that in the end it's going to be tested. It ends up being wood, straw, stubble, burned up, no value. Or you can build your life with things that end up being gold and silver and precious metals that that endure throughout eternity. What the Scripture reminds us of, that everything matters. What we do in the dot matters. Because everything about the line is determined by what happens in the dot. So one of the other questions I keep trying to keep before me, what am I going to do with my one and only life that's going to matter for all eternity? What am I going to do with my one and only life that's going to matter for all eternity? Because what can happen to me and it can happen to you is in this dot, we can just get caught up in living for the dot, can't we? And when it's all said and done, we haven't done a whole lot that matters for eternity. What happens on the dot determines everything that happens on the line. Everybody's going to spend forever somewhere. What am I going to do with my one and only life that's going to matter for all eternity? Now, if you just have the perspective of the dot, you're going to live your life one way. But if you understand the line, you're going to view and live your life differently. There should be a distinction between the followers of Jesus Christ and those who are not. 
Because the followers of Jesus Christ understand it's not just about a dot, but it's also about the line. And what happens in the dot determines everything that happens on the line. And so one other question I give you today is simply this. When I think about my one and only life, am I living for the dot or am I living for the line? Am I living in light of the future that God has promised those in Jesus Christ? Or am I living for the dot? One person put it this way. May what will be most important to me five minutes after I die become most important to me now. That's not a bad prayer, is it? God, would you just help? Help me to so view life that what's going to be most important to me five minutes after I die will become most important to me right now. How you see your future will determine how you see your life and how you live your life today. Are you going to live your one and only life for the dot or are you going to live it for the line? Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Oh, Father, I just thank you that you haven't left us to guess. Lord, I thank you that you have given us these precious promises and you've given us gracious invitation. And you, you, Lord, you, you not only have provided life beyond the grave, but Father, you've provided that perspective to help us to live the best life now and forever. And Lord, I just pray right now, I pray, Father, for every one of us in this room, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to truly understand the life that really is life. Father, I pray, Lord, knowing that there may be some folks that right now they're, they're, they're hearing my voice through their ears, but I pray they're hearing the voice of your spirit in their head and their heart. Lord, I just pray right now that you would just draw them to you. Father, I pray that, that today would be a, a marker day, not because it's an anniversary of a terrorist attack, because it's the day when they come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. It's the day when they move uh, from an eternity apart from you to an eternity with you. Lord, let today be the day of a salvation. Lord, I pray for those who are followers of yours, who are in that. I already belong to him, but it's not yet totally fulfilled. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live this life, this day, in light of that day. You'd help us to live in the dot as, like we're living for the line. Lord, would you just graciously speak to us right now? And as you just continue to be still before the presence of the Father, I'm just going to ask you to take just a couple more moments. And as you're there, if you would just think about, is there a truth? Maybe one of these promises that you really need to focus on. Is this something, God, this week I need to, I need to keep this truth before me. I need to believe in it. I need to meditate upon it. What would that truth be for you? In light of the reality of eternity, in light of the fact that what I do in the dot determines everything on the line, is there some very specific action that the Spirit may be prompting you to take? Is there something you need to do? Something you need to stop doing? something that needs to be raised on the priority list 
in light of the promises of God, in light of the future that you have, how do you need to view and live your life differently this week? What does that look like for you? For some of you, part of your next step is going to be...